Now before we get started here into our study, let's let's have a word of prayer together. I invite you to bow your heads with me. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, that we can come together still and worship thee together on the holy Sabbath day. We know the time is very short and time is coming where uh, it uh, it will be uh, essentially made illegal for us to do this and uh, we'll be uh, coerced uh, to worship on the first day of the week. And so, Lord, we pray for your holy grace uh, to be poured out upon us through the Holy Spirit. We ask for that gift now. We pray, Lord, that you will give us courage and strength to stand, even though we may stand alone, knowing that we are never alone. And, uh, Father, we pray that you will forgive us our sins as we uh, prepare ourselves for what is soon to come upon the world. Uh, we lift up those who couldn't be here today, those who are uh, battling health issues, uh, be they mental or physical, emotional. Father, we pray that you be very near to them. Uh, be with those who've lost loved ones. We think of uh, the attacks there in Chattanooga. We pray that you be with those families. And Lord, as the world is trampling upon righteousness, let us be a light to them, uh, to Jesus. Uh, a light showing what righteousness is, especially the love of Jesus. So Lord, we pray for a double dose of the love of, of Jesus to be in our hearts. And Lord, give me the words to speak this morning. And may hearts be made uh, a fertile ground to hear the truth and to accept it. We thank you so much for Jesus, his life and death in our behalf. And we pray this in his blessed name, for he is so worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, I have entitled this particular study... The majority compulsion. I know it says the compulsion of the majority in the bulletin, but I kind of changed it this morning. Um, that's kind of a long title, isn't it? The compulsion of the majority. You know, human beings were created as social creatures, weren't they? So if we understand that, uh, every human being, uh, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, everyone wants some friends. Would you agree with that? Everyone wants some, some friends. And people will do almost anything to get friends. Have you noticed that? And to get friends, people want to fit into social groups to which those people belong. And so, in order to fit into a social group, um, people will do what other people are doing to fit in. Have you noticed that? If people think that everybody that is part of the in crowd is doing something, they're doing something in particular, you'll be amazed at what they will do to be with them. If I were to recount to you what people have done in different societies, especially pagan societies, because everybody else was doing it, I think you would be shocked. It would shock your senses, your sensibilities. 
but people will do what everybody's doing because they want to fit into the group. You see this all the time with social media, if you're a part of the social media that's out there today. Young guys join gangs because of this. Even terrorists do this to be recognized with terrorists' organizations. Have you, have you seen the number of U.S. citizens that are joining with overseas terrorist groups? They do know, Jerry, that's the point. They do know what they're getting into. But what is, what is it that attracts them and attracts people into these groups? And that's what I'm going to talk about today. It's this, this uh, majority uh, uh, compulsion. But for the most part, people want to have friends. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Of course not. We're social creatures. We were created that way. So if everybody's doing it, they'll do it so that they will fit into the group. And people are being primed, and this is something that you don't see unless you are uh, spiritually discerning. People are being primed for the battle of Armageddon, and they don't even know it. That is the majority compulsion. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. The Bible has a lot to say about this, actually. Yes? Actually, I read an article... About they tested, they had a, a room full of people, and they put out this uh, statement that was actually false. Uh-huh. They had one person in the room they were testing. Twenty-nine people agreed with the false statement. To see what the 29th to person... To see what the 30th person would do. Yeah. And more times than not, I forget the percentage, yeah. but most of the time that person went, along with, the went crowd. along with the crowd to agree with the false statement. That's very good. I mean, that's very good that you bring that up because that's exactly, that's exactly what, what I'm talking about. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about this, this compulsion of the majority, this majority compulsion. Uh, did you know that the Bible spoke, speaks about that? Moses said it as good as anybody. Let's go to Exodus 23 and verse 2. Exodus 23 and verse 2. Here it says in the Bible here, it says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do what? To do evil. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. Now, if you go to the original, you go to the original, the word do there, um, to do evil, that is not in the original. But this prohibition covers evil see in our deeds, it covers evil in our words, and even in our thoughts. That's what this is talking about. Now if we remember the words of Jesus, we're not to take the manner of life of, of the many as our example on how to behave. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 7. One of the chief dangers that faces professed Christians is that of the willingness to follow the crowd. As Rollin brought up, that test wasn't for Christians, but Christians are too much like the world today. Even though the, the Scripture admonishes us against having that tendency. But it's almost like a magnet, isn't it? It's almost like a magnet that draws people. Now the last half of that verse, 
in verse 2, you know, where it says, Neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. I knew somebody would probably ask me about that, but it, it, it means it's referring to actually one of the judges who's not to follow the other judges in deciding a case, but to have his own opinion and to hold to it. And I wish we had more of that today. Amen? You notice that justice really isn't just anymore. They don't go by what the law says. They don't interpret the law. They go by what was decided by the courts 50 years ago and 20 years ago and 10 years ago. They call it precedence. To me, I've always thought that's like passing the buck. This really isn't my opinion or this is my opinion based on their opinions from before. Well, I want to know what the law says and what it means, not what other men thought it meant. Amen? But I want to concentrate on the first part of what Moses said. He said, do not follow a multitude to do evil. Now, think back when you were younger. We, we learn the danger of following the majority when we're small children, don't we? Let me tell you the story, uh, the story that happened to a young child of nine years of age named Ellen Harmon. She was going home from school one day, and an older girl got angry with her for some reason. And, and now as adults, as adults, when we get angry at each other, and if we have money, especially if we have money, we'll take that person to court and we'll sue them. That's the way we fight as adults, legally anyway. That's the way we fight, isn't it? But when you are children, you do not go to court. When you get angry with somebody, when you get angry with somebody, what do you do? As, as a child, what do you do? Well, you get physical, don't you? You get physical. You don't like what somebody says, you punch them in the arm. Right? Or and so, else. or someplace else. And so, this girl was angry, and she got physical with Ellen Harmon, this nine-year-old girl. She picked up a stone and she threw it at Ellen, just as Ellen was turning around, and the stone hit her right by her nose, and then the blood started gushing out of her nose. You have, by the way, some very fine blood vessels in your nose. Did you know that? Sometimes when people get high blood pressure, they get nosebleeds. And physicians have a terrible time getting them to stop. And I know this to be true. <laughs> uh, I've experienced it myself. It's not a fun experience, let me tell you. It's not fun. But the blood gushed out of Ellen's nose and she lost so much blood that she collapsed to the ground. And of course the people came and they picked her up and they took her home, but she lost so much blood that she was unconscious for, for a good amount of time. But that wasn't the worst of it. After she came to, she was very weak due to her blood loss, which is understandable. She was so severely injured that they thought she was going to die. But she didn't die. Praise God. And as she recovered, she gained her strength, but she gained it very slowly. And as she was starting to get better, and she, but she was still weak, not only had the stone caused a head concussion, but it had also disfigured her face. 
Now, I wanted to read to you what she said about this. And this has to do with our subject this morning. Let me read to you what she said about this. This is found in Life Sketches, page 133. She says, I gained strength very slowly. As I became able to join and play with my young friends, I was forced to learn the bitter lesson that one's personal appearance makes a difference in the treatment they receive from the majority of their companions. So what happened when she she went back to school? Well, people didn't treat her the same way. Why? Because her face, right, her face was disfigured due to that injury. And, and, you know, I've seen news programs actually talk about this and do, do episodes about this that show statistics that the more handsome a person is, the more beautiful a person is, the better they are treated. Why is that, you suppose? Think about that. There are many people that preachers deal with, and not just preachers, uh, uh, physicians deal with, teachers deal with, those who are in health care, they deal with it. There are many people whose lives in this world apparently are ruined because something happened at some time in their life that changed their physical appearance. Their physical appearance was damaged, so their friends don't want anything to do with them. And the Bible actually talks about it. The Lord said in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, and he was talking to Samuel, he was talking about anointing the first king. And he says, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance. But the Lord looketh on what? The heart. So maybe there's somebody listening and they're saying, you know, Pastor Joel, it's not fair. It's just not fair. I'm one of those people like Ellen Harmon. I I did not inherit a beautiful face. Or I did not inherit a beautiful body. So I'm in trouble in this world in this world, and and I don't have the friends that I ought to have. It's not fair. And it's truly devastating for many people. And and they don't believe that they have any value. And that's very sad. You see, because let me tell you that you are more valuable, and don't misunderstand me here. Listen to what I'm going to say. You are more valuable than the Son of God. Did you know that? Think about that. Our Father in Heaven traded His only begotten Son for you. Do you understand what I'm saying now? You are priceless to our Father in Heaven. Do you believe that? Many don't. Many don't believe that. And so they suffer and they despair over their physical condition. They despair over their lack of social fellowship. Let me share something with you that goes along with this. 
we think about Jesus, we think about the price that was paid for us. Jesus came down here to earth and became like one of us. Did you know that there's no bitterness that the human family experiences that Jesus didn't experience? Jesus came to this world to take your place. He experienced all the bitterness that people experience in this world that don't have friends because their face is disfigured or their body is disfigured or maybe they don't have enough money to buy nice clothes, whatever it may be. It has affected their entire social life and their existence. But Jesus has experienced far worse, the same and worse. And he did that for you. Now notice what the Bible says about Jesus in this regard. And this is directly in line with what we are studying here. It has to do with the majority compulsion, as I call it. And I want to tell you, friends, the world is in dire need of people who have been set free from this majority compulsion. And the only way that you can be set free from it is through Jesus Christ. Those who see the value This is what the world needs. It needs people who can see the value of a human being and a human soul, even if the outward appearance is not just what it ought to be. But I want you to notice what it says here about Jesus. And this is the way that Jesus was treated. This is Isaiah 53. Are you familiar with Isaiah chapter 53? It's the prophecy of the Messiah. Verses 2 and 3, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form, nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. If you haven't read chapter 53 in a while, I suggest that you you go back and read the whole chapter. People were not attracted to Jesus because he didn't have the physical beauty that the rich people had. He was dressed in poor man's clothes. And when there is no outward beauty, what is the result? You know, there were many people who when they saw Jesus, they believed what he said, but they wouldn't follow him because nobody else was. And that's the majority compulsion that I'm talking about. Jesus only had who? He had a few fishermen. He had one tax collector, and that was the lowest level in society if you were a tax collector. He had a zealot. Those were patriots, you know. Uh, they, they were against the Roman government. He had one of those. And people looked at that bunch that he had and they said to themselves that, well, change is never going to happen with them. You know, Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah. I mean, He could not possibly be the Son of God because if Jesus were the Son of God, He wouldn't have such a motley crew of guys around Him. But I want you to notice what Jesus said to them in John 
chapter 8. Verses 45 to 47. We'll begin with verse 45. It says, And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Those are pretty strong words, aren't they? Now these people had just been saying, they've been saying, look, this man cannot be the Messiah. He just cannot be. If you back up a bit to John chapter 7, verse 52, notice what they said in their reaction to Jesus in this verse. They said, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. So what were they saying? They said, No prophet has ever come from Galilee. So Jesus could not possibly even be a prophet. You see? Back up a few more verses in that same chapter. Verse 24. John 7 verse 24. Jesus said, Judge not according to the appearance, He said, but judge righteous judgment. Judging by appearance has everything to do with the majority compulsion. Because you see, most people in the world are afraid to do something that a lot of other people are not doing. They don't want to be alone. Or they don't want to be in a small group that's standing out. Well, how did this kind of compulsion get started? Well, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you read in Genesis chapters 6 and 7, you find the story of Noah. And we know that story, don't we? The story of Noah and the flood. God came to Noah and He said, and, and you can read it in, in chapter 6, verse 13 on. He says, basically, the end of all flesh has come before me. This is God speaking. He says, they come before me. The thoughts of man's hearts are only evil continually. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I'm going to destroy them with the earth. And so God said to Noah, I want you to build a boat. I want you to build a boat and everybody that will get on the boat will be saved and the people that don't get on the boat are going to be lost because I'm going to destroy this world with a flood. This is what he told Noah. So Noah began to preach. And as he preached, he preached for 120 years, it turns out. It took that long for everybody to be reached and to make a decision. Right? It's not an arbitrary number God came up with. But he preached for 120 years. In fact, you think about it, it's probably the longest evangelistic campaign that I've read about in the Bible. <laughs> 120 years. But uh, while he was preaching, he was building this huge boat. Now, it was as big as an ocean liner is today. That's how big it was. And people began to listen. The message that, that Noah was preaching, it went all over the world. This message, and a message about him building this boat. Now, he, he was building a boat in a place like Lafayette, for example. 
There's no ocean anywhere near Lafayette to float a boat. And people said, he's crazy. And once he gets the boat built on the dry land, what's he going to do with it? See? And you know what they called it? They called it Noah's Folly. I mean, there's no machinery big enough to haul it. It's just out there, it seems like, in the middle of nowhere. And we don't even try to do that today with all the technology that we have. Do you know that? We don't build ocean liners in Lafayette and haul them to the ocean. We build automobiles and we build diesel engines in Lafayette, but not ocean liners. You know, if you ever visit Lafayette, you're not going to see an ocean uh, going ship building plant there and see a bunch of ocean liners lined up ready to be hauled down the highway. It just doesn't happen. They build those kinds of things in seaports. And they do that for a reason, see? So people began to talk about Noah's folly. And they scoffed about, about all of it. Now think about it. As they're scoffing, there were children and young people listening you know, to their parents. And they were listening to these teachers and preachers and all the people in their social group making all these jokes about Noah's folly. Can you imagine? You know what the young people thought in their mind because of all that? They decided they couldn't get on the boat because they'd be laughed at if they got on the boat. So when the time came, after that evangelistic series of 120 years, and everybody had, had made their decisions, the time came for the flood to come. Because God had said it was going to happen. And when God says something's going to happen, does it happen? Noah, he'd been faithful in preaching. He had been faithful in building the boat. The world said, Noah, you're crazy. Because there hadn't even been rain in the history of mankind up to that point. And when the time came to get on the boat, the only people that were willing to get on the boat were the members of Noah's family. His wife, his three sons, and his son's wives. Eight people got on the boat and that was all there was a very small remnant of believers got in the ark of God to be saved why didn't anybody else get in the boat have you ever thought about it let me ask you were there other people that really thought that probably the flood was going to come There were. There were a a number of people who believed Noah's preaching. Why didn't they get on the boat? Well, I'll tell you. It's due to the majority compulsion. The vast majority stayed off the ark. They weren't getting on it, you see, because no one else was. Let me ask you this question. The people that really believed Noah, but they didn't get on the boat because of this majority compulsion... When the flood came, God saved them anyway, right? No. He didn't. So let me ask you then. Can you lose your soul because of the majority compulsion? You certainly can. 
I don't know how many I've, of people I've talked to in my life who've said, you know, I believe the commandments. I believe what the Bible says. I, I believe the prophecy. The end times are here. I believe these things. And I think, well, if you believe it, why don't you act on your belief? You see, in Noah's day, if you're going to be saved, you had to act on your belief. And what was that action? You got on the boat. If you believe the three angels' messages, if you study the prophecies and know that they are true, why do you not act on your belief? You see, here's the thing, friends. It's not enough to believe the truth. That's not enough. If you'd believe that the flood was coming, that would not do one bit of good if you didn't get on the boat. Is that right? Some people say, and I think you've, you've heard this before, some people say that Peter was the first pope. Have you heard that before? Roman Catholicism says that. They claim Peter to be the first pope. Well, let me tell you, if all the people that look up to Peter as their spiritual leader would just do what he said, I think the world would actually be a pretty good place. <laughs> you know? The people say that he's their leader, but they don't listen to what he says. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. He says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. How do you purify your soul? How do you become purified so that you are ready to go to heaven? Is it because you know the truth? Now that's important, isn't it? Isn't it important to know what the truth is? It is, isn't it? That's part of it, isn't it? But... Do you purify your soul and, and, and are you made ready to go to heaven just because you know the truth? No. What does Peter say? He says it is by obeying the truth. And this is where the majority fail. Very sad to say. This is where we too often fail. Isn't that right? We don't obey. We know what the truth is yet we don't obey. I've been talking to people for a long time about the Bible, about prophecy. I'll ask them, do you know what day is the Sabbath? And, and I've actually been surprised by some people. They say, yeah, I know which day the Sabbath is. It's the seventh day. The seventh day is the Sabbath. And I can prove it to you from the Bible. Really? Doesn't the Bible say Sunday is? No, the Sunday's not even in there. I've had people say this to me. I've even had them say, you know, I've studied prophecies and I know there's going to be a law. And I think to myself, well, if you believe it, why are you not obeying it? Why do you not keep God's holy day? Well, let me tell you, one of the biggest reasons 
is because of this majority compulsion. Somebody in the, his or her home, you know, could be his wife or a husband or, or parents or maybe their employer doesn't like it. See? People are afraid to do what they know and believe is the truth because there are other people in their social group. And let me tell you, we all uh, are of different social groups, aren't we? But there, there are people in their social group who are not doing it, and so they're afraid to do it. Yes? There's some people that also believe that the Ten Commandments were done away with when Jesus was hung on the cross. Mm-hmm. So none of it matters anymore. Right. So that's a lot of them, too, that believe that, well, the Ten Commandments were done away with, which they weren't, so I don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. When we think about this, this majority compulsion, do you know that Jesus knew that people were going to be coerced by other people in their social groups? And that they were going to have to make a decision whether they were going to go along with the majority or whether they are going to obey their conscience. Did you know Jesus, he knew that that was going to happen? Notice what he said in Matthew chapter 10. We'll begin with verse 34. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. We hear that a lot today. Peace, peace, when there is no peace, friends. And Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of who? The outside world? No, Jesus said, of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. And that's the qualifier there. People skip that one. For his sake. That's what he said. He that loseth his life for my sake, is what he said, shall find it. So Jesus said that you're going to have to make up your mind whether to go along with the majority in your social group or whether to be faithful to what I've told you. I've heard people say, I want to wait until this person or that person in my family or somebody accepts it. And then we'll all accept the truth together. I've had uh, before people say, well, I'm, I'm going to go home and I'm going to talk to my wife and my family about it. And then there's always the one, well, I, I'm going to wait for the Holy Spirit to convict me about that. Better be careful if you think that. Who inspired the Holy Bible? Wasn't it the Holy Spirit? Well, I suppose it is, or being brought to their attention at that time, the Holy Spirit is talking <laughs> to them at that time. Exactly. Exactly right. But I run into these things. And people want to wait, see. Listen, friends. Let me tell you that your chances of winning somebody else in your family while you are disobeying the truth yourself, those chances are almost nil. That's a fact. It almost never happens. I can't say it will never happen. 
just because statistically there's a possibility that it would. But it almost never happens. If you want to win somebody else in your family, the thing for you to do is to obey the truth that you know. Isn't that correct? And as they see you obeying it and they see that it's changing your life and it's making you a Christ-like person, then they'll be attracted to what you have. But why should anybody be attracted to somebody who's a hypocrite? Who believes something but doesn't do it? Why should anybody be attracted to that? I'm going to tell you right now that they aren't. So people go on, see. The husband's waiting for the wife. The wife's waiting for her mother. Who knows whom she's waiting on, right? Everybody's waiting. Just like it was in the days of Noah. The boat's ready. The people are looking around. Well, nobody else is getting on. I guess I won't either. And so what happens? They all drown. And that's the danger with following the majority. It was like that in Elijah's time. It was like that way in, uh, in, in Christ's time, in his day. The majority rejected Christ and they despised him because of his humble appearance. And I've often thought... If Christ were to appear in the world today the same way he appeared 2,000 years ago, if he'd be rejected as quickly, maybe even more quickly than he was then. Because the truth is being rejected today, and Jesus is the truth, isn't he? They rejected him because of his very humble appearance. They didn't want any part of his self-denial. They didn't want any part of his humility. They wanted kingly power. See, to do their own thing. They wanted to be in charge. And it's been that way ever since Christ's day. And as we go down from one generation to the next, we find out that the majority has rejected the people of Christ, the people that Christ has sent to them, almost every time. Do you realize, i get a little bit of history here. Do you realize that Martin Luther, you know who Martin Luther was? The morning star of the Reformation he was referred to. Martin Luther stood up all by himself against pretty much the whole world at one time. Did you know that? One man standing against all the political power and the religious power in the world in his day. He stood up against it. One of the main arguments that they used on him over and over again was that it is impossible that he could be right and the whole world be wrong. There were millions of people that were convinced by that argument. Does that prove anything is true or not just because the majority says so? It doesn't prove anything, does it? So at the protest of the princes, if you read about this history, and you, you can find this in the Great Controversy, pages 200-201, they, they said, and this is the, 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 the princes had gotten together and they were talking about this, and they said, in matters of conscience, 
the majority has no power. And that, my friends, is the principle that was adopted in the United States at its founding, you see. And that is the principle that resulted in this country becoming the greatest country in the world. In this country, if you don't go to the largest church in town, you don't need to worry about the police coming and taking you to jail. If you don't go to the same church as as your governor or your senator, uh, president, whoever, doesn't matter, they're not going to come and get you. In matters of conscience, the majority has no power. But today, we have the majority compulsion so much as any former time in history, and it's preparing people to receive the mark of the beast. And we know it's going to change one day, isn't it? They may just come to your door. You weren't in church on Sunday. And what are you going to do? You go back to Martin Luther's day. If you go back to Christ's day, if you go back to Jeremiah's time or Elijah's time or or, or Noah's time, you find in each case there were multitudes of human beings that lost eternal salvation even though they knew the truth because of this majority compulsion. They looked around at some significant, who they considered significant, other people, see, in their social club, in their social network, uh, um, They didn't do it either because they wanted to hold on to those relationships, you see. But let me tell you, beloved, do you realize that if you don't follow Christ, if you don't obey Him, if you don't do what is right with the Bible, every relationship you have is temporary anyway? It's going to be dissolved sooner than we think, I believe. Do you realize that? I believe in the relationship that God has set up. I believe that Christians should be faithful to their wives or husbands, as the case may be. I mean, no matter what. They should be faithful because they have taken a vow, you see. If that person's a non-believer, or if they are doing something wrong, we should be faithful anyway. Unless it causes one to disobey God. And I'm not talking about that. And so friends, I hope you realize we're coming to the end of the world. And unless you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, every relationship with your spouse, in your marriage, with your children, with your parents, with your friends, it's going to be dissolved here in the near future. Because what is a relationship after, for example, after a person dies? The relationship's not there anymore, is it? So unless you accept Jesus as your Savior and you obey the truths of the Bible that that you know, you will lose your soul and you are going to lose everything. See? That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 39, He said, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. That's why He said that. What's He talking about? Well, that text actually has a lot of meaning. 
But if you look at the context in which Jesus is talking, he's talking about the people who are going to risk losing their husband or their wife or, or their children or somebody significant in their life if they decide to follow Jesus. See? That's what he's talking about. So it looks like they're going to lose everything. But Jesus said, whatever you lose for my sake, you're going to find it. But what is going to What's going to happen to that person that is coerced by the majority? So they decide they, they can't follow Christ. They can't do what they, they know is right because they have to hang on to these human relationships no matter what happens, see? And what's going to happen to them? Well, what did Jesus say? He who finds his life is going to lose it. Isn't that what he said? So they, they've saved all their human relationships. They've hung on to everything. Right? But they're going to lose it. It's very interesting to study in inspiration about that, the majority. It's very interesting. First of all, we've been told in the book of Revelation that the vast majority will refuse to accept the three angels' messages. Now, what Revelation tells us? I mean, that's very clear, actually. You read Revelation chapters 12 through 18, it's very clear that the vast majority will reject the three angels' messages. Let me give you some questions to think about here. If the vast majority rejected, does that make it true or untrue? <laughs> that doesn't affect the truth of, of anything, does it? There was a time when the vast majority of the people of this world believed that the world was flat. Do you know that? Did that make it so? No. What the majority thinks doesn't make anything so. <laughs> In today's culture, it's taught that whatever you believe to be true is true. But is the definition of truth contingent on whether anybody believes it or not? When the vast majority of the people in this world reject the three angels' messages, and it's predicted over and over again in the book of Revelation that they will, uh, will that keep it from happening? No, it's not going to keep it from happening. It's going to happen anyway. It'll be fulfilled just the way it's described. Revelation 14. All that means is that the people that disregard it will receive the mark of the beast. They'll partake of the plagues. They will lose their eternal life. Did those who rejected the message to get on Noah's Ark lose their life? Even if you said, well, I'm a Christian, I believe. Did you know, friends, that most of those people that didn't get on uh, Noah's Ark were not atheists? Did you know that? Most of them claimed that they believed in the God of Heaven. Did you know that? In fact, do you know what one of their major arguments was? They said, God made the world. God loves us with an undying love. 
God would not destroy everything that he's made. That was one of the major arguments in those days. Do you know that? Just like there are people today who say, oh, God's so loving and so merciful, he couldn't destroy people in fire. But, you know, the Bible actually teaches that the earth will be cleansed by fire and the wicked will become ashes. That's what the Bible says. The third angel's message is, is a warning about hellfire. It is the most fearful warning in the entire Bible. And if you and I don't listen to it, or are indifferent to it, then we're going to reap the consequences. What about the people who accept the truth? There are some people who accept the truth, and they come to church. But is that going to save them? Let me read you about the majority of people who come to church. This is from the devotional This Day with God, page 55. She says, A large majority of the men and women who profess to know the truth prefer smooth messages. They do not desire to have their sins and defects brought before them. They want accommodating ministers who will not arouse conviction by speaking the truth. They choose men who will flatter them, and in their turn, they flatter the minister who has shown such a good spirit while they revile the faithful servant of God. Have you ever been a witness to that? What do the majority of church people that profess to believe the truth want? What's she say? They want a preacher that'll tickle their ears, is what the Bible says. They want a preacher that'll preach smooth things. They want a preacher that will bring up, they don't want a preacher that's going to bring up the, the, the straight, pointed truths that are found in God's Word, because that might bother them. They might have to change their way of living. And they don't want that. Self doesn't want that. So they revile the minister that does that. And that's the majority, she says, who come to church. And you know what? I'm sorry to tell you this, that the majority of God's people today, they actually compulse the majority of preachers. So they... They will preach what they know the people want to hear because they know that if they don't, those people are going to forsake them. They'll be out of a job. So they preach what the people want to hear. And that's the majority compulsion, see? It works that way too. And don't think that preachers aren't subject to it. They're probably more subject to it than the average person. But you know what's going to happen if, if we follow the majority? What happened to the majority that followed, uh, to those that followed the majority in Noah's day? What happened to them? They couldn't tread water long enough. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, if we follow the judgment of the majority, we will not see heaven. That's the bottom line. We'll lose out because the majority of people, even the majority of Christians, don't want the cross in their religion. 
Isn't that something? You profess to be a follower of Christ, to be Christian, but you don't want the cross in your religion. Well, friends, one of the central themes of the New Testament is the cross of Christ. And notice what Paul says about this. This is in Galatians 2 and verse 20. I'll share two scriptures with you. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, and we're familiar with this, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So what is Paul saying in Galatians 2.20? He's saying, I am crucified. That involves a cross, doesn't it? If you're crucified. And then look at what he says in Galatians 6.14. He says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. But you see, that the majority of Christians today, they want a religion without the cross in it. Now, they may want to put a cross around their neck and one on the top of their church and, and put one around the rearview mirror in their car, but they don't want the real thing, do they? you know what the cross is about? Let's be sure we know what we're talking about. Look at Romans chapter 6. Apostle Paul shows exactly what he's talking about when, he's, when he says this in Romans 6 and verse 6. What does the cross involve? He says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That means he's put to death with Jesus. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Or uh, you can say that we should not be a slave to sin. So if your old man is crucified with Jesus, so that you're no you no longer serve sin, that you're no longer a slave to sin anymore, well, friends, that involves the cross. And people don't want that. They want to go on enjoying what the Bible calls the pleasures of unrighteousness. The second thing that brings the the cross is when there are people around you in your social group that are doing something different, and you have to decide if you're going to be coerced, by that social group, by that majority, that social group, or or are you going to take the cross of Christ and do what the Lord says to do? And this majority compulsion will be one of the main factors that will influence people as we approach the end of the world. People will look around to see what other people are doing, and they're going to make their eternal decision upon the actions of others in their social group, even friends, if it costs them eternal life. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Now before we close, I want to read you something very encouraging. And you've heard me allude to this before. Did you know that if you stand with the Lord, that you are actually in the majority? Did you know that Noah was actually in the majority? Because God is a majority all by himself. But it doesn't look that way to man, you see. We've been looking this morning at the way it looks to human beings. 
<coughs> people are coerced by people around them because they see other people doing or not doing something, and so they think that they have to eat or dress or work or, or practice religion or something else the way that the other people in their social group are doing. That's what they think. But did you know that if you surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, that God is always the majority? God is a majority, always. You know, we read in 2 Kings 6 about how the, the Syrian king, he sent soldiers to capture Elisha. You remember that story? And so they come and they surround the whole city. And when they, they got up in the morning here, Elisha and his servant, they got up and they, they look out and they see all these soldiers out there. And his servant, Elisha's servant, he says, well, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. We're outnumbered. Well, Elisha decided that his servant needed to learn a lesson about who was really in the majority. <laughs> so there they are. They appear to be staying there all alone, just the two of them. And, and there's this whole army around the city. And Elisha prayed, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, please open his eyes so he may see, Lord. And the Lord opened the, the servant's eyes and he looked out at the mountains around there and he saw that they were filled with fiery chariots. And he realized that he didn't have anything to be afraid of. And this is where it takes faith, friends. We're to believe that we are also in the majority when we accept Jesus. You read there, you go on, Elisha walked out to talk to that army. He walked out there all by himself. He was a majority, see? And he didn't have anything to worry about because the Lord had given him instructions. And when he went out, he, he struck them all blind, you see? And when he walked out there, there was nothing to be afraid of. So you don't have to be afraid of the majority in your family or where you work. You don't have to be afraid because if you've decided to stand on God's side of the question, God is a majority. So now I want to tell you, friends, if you decide to give your heart to Christ, if you decide to follow Him, you are in the majority right now. You can't see it. From the world's point of view, you may appear to be all alone. But if you are on God's side of the question, if you've decided to obey and follow Him, you are in the majority, even if you appear to the world to be all alone. Let me share this with you. It's from Acts of the Apostles, page 590. She says, In comparison with the millions of the world, God's people will be, as they have ever been, a little flock. Compared to who? The millions of the, well, world. Okay. But, she says, if they stand for the truth as revealed in His Word, God will be their refuge. They stand under the broad shield of omnipotence. That means all power. God is always a majority. He says, when the sound of the last trump shall penetrate the prison house of the dead and the righteous shall come forth with triumph exclaiming, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Standing then with God, 
with Christ, with the angels, and with the loyal and true of all ages, the children of God will be far in the majority. When we look at things from the spiritual perspective, we can understand. We're not alone. We can take heart. We're not alone. Noah was in the majority, though it didn't look like it. Jesus was in the majority, but didn't look like it, see? Martin Luther was in the majority. Didn't look like it. So if you decide to stand with God, it may look like everybody in your family, your friends, have forsaken you because you've decided to do what you know is right. And when you do that, you're in the majority. Because, as we just read, God is always majority why does God allow it why does God allow that appearance why does God allow it to appear like we are all alone well there's more than one answer (laughs) and that's true absolutely true and it does have to do with faith because God has to know you see, what your decision is. And God is not interested in people who do the right thing just because the majority are doing it. Did you know that God's not interested in followers like that? You see, my friends, your eternal destiny is determined by whether or not you will decide to be with God, even if it means standing alone in this world or whether you allow yourself to be coerced by the majority. You need to make a decision. You need to make a decision which way you're going to go, what you're going to do with your life. You see, the Lord cannot do for you what He wants to do if you do not make a decision to accept the gift of His Son. God has made every one of us a free moral agent. Isn't that true? Your spouse cannot get you saved. Your friends cannot get you saved. Your social network cannot save you. The preacher cannot save you. I cannot save you. No human being can get you saved. But you can make a decision to follow Jesus... And if you do, the Lord will save you. Will you make that decision right now? Will you you be on the Lord's side even if it appears that you are all alone? When you have God on your side, friends, you've heard me say say this before, you're never alone. <laughs> For he, he's always a majority, of, as we just read. You have all heaven on your side. So friends, if you, you want to have strength, you want to have courage to stand against the majority compulsion, if you want to be on the Lord's side, bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much that you are the majority always. 
we thank you so much that we have the opportunity to be a part of the majority. <laughs> Though the, to the world it looks like we're just a little flock, a remnant. And Lord, we give you our hearts now. We accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior from sin. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts that love may reign we may be a witness to those around as Noah was, faithful Noah. Lord, help us to give the three angels messages. Even if it appears we stand alone, it may just save someone. And Lord, please continue to bless us. We need your blessings. Help us to prepare for what's soon to hit this world as an overwhelming surprise. May we be ready And may we be ready to stand when Jesus returns. We pray in His blessed name.